So I want to welcome everyone to the Parisi Pack podcast. I am Steve Leo, going to be your host again this week. Um, lucky enough to have Eric Cressy on for our podcast this week. Um, he's down in uh, beautiful San Diego, so not a tough place to be right now. Uh, getting ready to uh, you know work with his team out there. Uh, but I'm going to let him introduce himself. If you don't know who Eric Cressy is, he is probably the baseball guy right now. Um, works with tons of. Uh, Major league players, minor league players, all the way, I think, all the way down to high school level. I know I've heard amazing things about him. I've been a fan as well, reading a lot of his uh, work. So I'm going to let him do an intro on himself, and then maybe I'll fill in the gaps a little. So, Eric, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Sure. No, no sweat. Thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, Cliff Notes, I guess, would be uh, I did my undergraduate uh, at the University of New England. actually started out at Babson College thinking I was going to be an accountant and then caught the, uh, the training bug and nutrition bug and, and actually transferred to the University of New England. Did a double major in exercise science and, and sports and fitness management. And then went on to the University of Connecticut for my graduate degree. And it was at UConn where I was you know, kind of up in the air on which path I wanted to take, whether it was more clinical research, um, you know, stuff like that, or, you know, clinical exercise physiology. Um, and I just so happened that while I was there, I, I caught the strength conditioning bug and I was fortunate to have some, some good mentors and actually spent most of my time at UConn working at, uh, with men's basketball, uh, uh, excuse me, men's and women's basketball, men's and women's soccer, um, a little bit with field hockey and, you know, got exposed to a wide variety of stuff. And, um, actually always thought I was going to go into college strength and conditioning, uh, particularly with respect to the basketball sector. And, um, after I finished up, um, opportunity came up to, to work at a facility, um, in Southern Connecticut. And, um, so I went that route, wanted to build something in the private sector. And, um, that eventually led me to, uh, to head up to Boston where another facility was open up and, Long story short, some of the first guys I started working with in, in Massachusetts were baseball players. It was, a, you know, a couple of high school baseball players. And um, just so happened that, you know, the four of those guys wound up winning a state championship. One of them won state player of the year, and they all went on to play college baseball. And my phone started ringing off the hook. So that led us to open um, our original Cressy Sports Performance Facility in 2007. Um, and it was an opportunity to kind of carve out this, this baseball niche in Massachusetts. And what really happened was uh, high school guys became college guys, college guys became pro guys and, you know, they had teammates, they had agents, they had you know teams. So we started getting referrals from all over the place. Um, in 2014, we opened our second location. Um, it was in Jupiter, Florida. We just expanded it and built out a, a larger space in, in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. So we have the two facilities um, and, and deal with guys from all 30 major league organizations. Um, and this past December, um, I signed on to, to be director of player health and performance for the New York Yankees. So um, that's what brought me to San Diego. I'm, I'm currently in the MLB bubble. I'm actually spending my 10th wedding anniversary in the bubble today. <laughs> so my wife is a, a very, very patient woman from afar. Um, and uh, that kind of happy anniversary. Thank you very much. I'd say that's the cliff notes, but I guess it wasn't really that short. No, no. I think, listen, uh, obviously you have a tremendous background. And I know a couple of the things about you that I'll fill in if you're okay with. I know you've, you've spoken obviously all around. Yeah. Uh, you were on a Perform Better tour. I've seen you speak live myself. Uh, I know you've written, I think, four or five books, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that, I, I kind of lose track, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think four or five. Yeah. I think I have two, so I got to get a couple yeah. more from you. Um, I know you've done some DVDs. I follow you. You know, I get all your uh, your weekly uh newsletters and, and videos. And Thank I think you. you do a tremendous job with that. I think we need more people like you who take, who take that approach and, and really try to keep it simple. Um, yeah. I like how you do, you know, you'll send an article or a newsletter blog, whatever word you want to use these days and also include a little video to it. I think it's very yeah. uh, easy to digest because it's all in little snippets. Uh, yeah. So I, I've definitely enjoyed the way you've, you presented your content. I think it's uh it's good for our industry. We need more. Thank of that. you. I think, um, 
you know, when we go into this field, we, you know, obviously we want to make a living, we want to impact athletes and all that, but I think we have a, you know, responsibility to pay it forward, try to grow the industry in, in different ways. So, um, you know, whether that's, you know, doing my podcast or writing or doing Instagram posts or whatever it is, or, or presenting obviously at, at clinics with perform better and others. Um, I, th- I think it's important for us to kind of set the stage for the next generation of coaches that are coming through. And um, that's something that I, you know, selfishly, I've also used as an opportunity for me to learn, you know, every time you write something, you have to organize your thoughts a little bit better. And I think it makes you a better communicator to your athletes when you teach those things. Um, but also it makes you, you know, kind of critically analyze what you're doing, uh, why you're doing it, how you're doing it. Um, so writing presenting has actually made me a much better strength coach and a better teacher. Um, because, you know, really whether it's in the private sector or in my role in, in pro baseball, like I, I have to lead. Um, and, you know, that's not something I was naturally equipped to do. So um, I think those things have, you know, a lot of ways kind of prepared me to, to scale, you know, the education that we're trying to do for other coaches. Yeah, I think everyone's thankful for it. There aren't as many people like you out there in the industry. You know, you get a lot of people who in a way want to hide what they know. Yeah. Um, and I've experienced that myself in, in my 20 some years as a strength coach as well. And I think we just need more people like you that want to share because there are so many athletes that can benefit from it. And at the end of the day, I feel it's about the athlete. It's not about us. Yeah. It's, I mean, a rising tide lifts all ships. Um, yep. We're in a, we're in an industry that's this remarkably dynamic in nature. Um, if you look at where strength addition research was, I mean, 15, 20 years ago, everything was just aerobic exercise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were, we were just starting to scratch the surface. Nowadays there's, there's new stuff coming out each day and it, it's, you know, you can get very complacent very quickly if you're not careful. So you do need to stay on top of it. And that's why I think, you know, things like this, you know, having, having, you know, the ability to listen to podcasts in the car, um, you know, obviously in, in 2020 uh, doing zoom calls and, and things like that. I think it's uh, it's great because I just, I joke with our, our interns, you know, like at our facilities, like guys come in and they have a, you know, 42 page curriculum that we, we work to get through over the course of the, you know, the, the internship and, you know, they've already gone through like a 10 week online course before they even show up. So it's this very regimented um, kind of curriculum. And I just tell them like, you guys have no idea how good it is. Like I, I started out in this field. Like I didn't write my first email till my freshman year of college in (laughs) 1999. And there was just nothing out there. Like we had to like just experiment and see what worked and, and try to learn. But I can remember, you know, 2001, 2002, every Friday afternoon, hit refresh, waiting for the new T Nation update from you know, Charles <laughs> Pollockin or Ian King go. or any of those guys to come out. Um, and nowadays, like you, it's almost like an embarrassment of riches from a continuing education standpoint. So um, there's no excuse to not be a pro, like a, a, a good strength coach nowadays. There's so many resources out there to really help you if you're willing to put in the time and effort. No, there's so much information out there. I mean, uh, just a quick story on us. When I started with Bill back in the late 90s, I mean, we would train on Saturday mornings like everyone would train. And by 12, 1 o'clock, we'd grab lunch and we'd pop in VHS tapes of Paul Chat yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, anyone else we could find. And that's when you had to order a videotape on the back of a magazine, had to rip it off and mail it in and pray a videotape would show up at your house in three weeks. So it's incredible. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a lot different now. <laughs> it's definitely a lot different now. So, um, I, so, you know, as far as, you know, working with baseball players, I have a few questions I want to ask and obviously we can kind of, you know, expand upon them. But I think one of the biggest ones, I'm sure you've answered this before, but we'll, we'll, we'll go through it again. As far as baseball specialization versus the multi-sport athlete. And the reason why I bring this up too is in this time, right, we're dealing with COVID, you know, in New Jersey, uh, we lost our spring season. So no kids really mm-hmm. played spring high school baseball, although club did pick up in the summer and I know fall baseball is picking up. So in a weird way, these kids were forced into specialization um, yeah. up here. 
So obviously I want to know your thoughts on baseball specialization, but also how it's kind of dealing with, uh, you know, these times as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, certainly I'm, I'm pretty adamantly opposed to specialization for any athlete, but I think um, baseball is a particularly concerning case because it's throwing a baseball is the single fastest motion recorded in, in sports, right? It's 7,000 degrees per second of, of shoulder and turn rotation. So that's a pretty crazy stimulus. And we certainly see, um, you know, particular adaptations that take place in the throwing shoulder, right? We see, um, you know, humeral retroversion. So it's, it's effectively a warping of the growth plate that allows you to have more external rotation in your throwing shoulder. We see valgus carrying angles um, at the elbow where, you know, certainly that, that valgus stress can, can effectively lead to a different resting posture. You just see all these things that, um, you know, are, are normal findings in throwers that speak to just how stressful the activity is. But what's probably even more interesting about it is, you know, this is a sport that demands, um, you know, you do the same thing over and over and over again. And, and the better you do that, the better you are, right? So if you're a pitcher, you want the hitter to appreciate that your fastball, your slider, your changeup, everything looks exactly the same coming out. And then they all just go in different directions. So, you know, you we, we chase this unyielding specificity in the sport, right? Same thing kind of goes with hitting. Obviously, there's adjustability, Um but, you know, you run the bases, you always run fast and turn left, <laughs> you know, like over and over again, we do the same things in this sport. Um, and, and so that's why I think it's so important to have a contrast, right? And, and whether that's playing multiple sports, um, whether that's, you know, actually going out and using strength conditioning is that that stimulus to give you this, you know, rich proprioceptive environments where you're training in more planes of motion, where you're kind of undoing some of those, those asymmetries that take place. I think it's, it's critically important. And, and that's true of all of them. But, you know, the thing we don't appreciate is you can look at the ACL research in soccer, right? And you can look at ankle sprains in basketball, all these things. None of them even come close to what we're dealing with in arm injuries in baseball, right? 57% of pitchers have some form of shoulder issue every season right? That's over half. Then you throw in elbows, you throw in necks, toss in a few blisters and, and nail problems. Um, and before you know it, like literally hundred percent of players have some issue. So what we're always doing is we're, we're, we're effectively triaging baseball players. We're realizing this is a very unnatural act. It's very stressful, particularly when done at high volumes at high frequencies and at, at crazy high velocities. Um, so we're always going to be managing, you know, that are they above or below the threshold and, you know, uh, you don't want to be there when you're 14. You know what I mean? It's, it's one no. thing when you're 24 and you're getting paid a lot of money to do this. Um, but it's, it's a markedly different scenario when we're dealing with it, you know, developing kids who are skeletally immature, who are encountering some of these stressors. And that's what we're seeing in baseball now. Um, so this is, you know, kind of a <laughs> going off on a different road here, but, um, what we're seeing is a, a lot of elbow injuries uh, in professional baseball, but more specifically, we're actually seeing a lot more in minor league baseball than we are in the big leagues. So we're seeing it in younger players, whereas the injuries seem to be leveling off or even slightly decreasing in, in, um, in big leaguers, right? Shoulder injuries are actually lower than they've been in a long time, but elbow injuries have kind of stayed high, but it's particularly problematic in the minor league side. And if you talk to some of these surgeons who are doing the repairs, what they're finding is when they go in and they do a Tommy John surgery on a, you know, a 23 year old minor leaguer, they're recognizing that that ligament actually has previous areas of calcification. So it's not like happenstance just happened. He threw a 98 mile an hour fastball and it went on him at age 23. What actually probably happened was there were a lot of low grade injuries um, at age 13, 14, 15, 16, where that kid went out and threw 120 pitches or, you know, pitch back to back days or, you know, tried to throw a curveball and in reality just made it into a terrible slide or something like that. And they're developing these weaknesses um, on the ligament 
that eventually when the athlete gets bigger, stronger, more mechanically efficient, and is throwing harder, those forces just exceed what that ligament can tolerate. So that's one more reason why protecting guys a little bit more carefully at the younger ages is going to save the game, you know, in a lot of ways, right? It's going to, you know, obviously keep people engaged because it's a big deal to miss a year of participation in the teenage years, but it's also concerning when, you know, those, those same athletes are broken before they can get to the highest level to really show what they're capable of doing. Yeah. That was actually going to be my follow-up question. You, you sort of answered it. And, you know, how do you feel if you take, like you said, a 12, 13, 14 year old, that's probably the kid who's just getting into club ball and, and yeah. playing in tournaments, which I'm going to give you a disclaimer. I can't stand a tournament scene. I think, <laughs> I think that's an issue because these kids are playing six games in a weekend as yeah. opposed to playing two or three a week. I'm sure that's another yeah. topic yeah. we can tackle. Um, but how do you balance? Because I've worked with a lot of baseball players. Actually, my facility was in a baseball facility. I worked yeah. with a club team who I thought did a very good job of uh, teaching biomechanics and the kids would be involved with us with strength conditioning. Mm-hmm. But I know from talking to parents, right? Parents are they're, they're, they're hedging their bet, right? They're trying yeah. to figure out a way to make their kid be whoever he, he can be at some point. But how do you balance a kid who has poor mechanics and needs that extra work and, but then go to the other side and then that kid who probably, like you said, pitches too much or throws too much. And I agree hundred percent. It's, it's, it's a cumulative effect over time. It could be three, four, five, eight years of, of them playing club ball or playing too much. How do you balance a parent says, you know what, my little Johnny needs mechanical work and needs to get stronger. You know, how, how much, what's the right dosage, you know? And I know that's, yeah. that's a very broad question, but what advice maybe would you give to us that we can relate to our parents? Because they ask us that question a lot. Yeah. Um, so I'll answer it in kind of two different ways. The first thing I'll say is particularly more so at the higher levels, we actually have no idea what good mechanics really are. We have, we have, we have ideas about it and we have ideas about mechanics that may optimize performance, but we have to realize that you, sometimes if you coach the different out of somebody, um, you take away what makes them successful, right? So Chris sale, right? Chris sale has, you know, funky body type, crazy delivery that you would never teach to a young kid, but it's obviously made him an elite pitcher. Obviously he's injured right now. So we don't know how, how sustainable it was, but you know, it made him a lot of money and, you know, won a world series, all these different things. So you, uh, you have to appreciate that a lot of the common things that we've thought about, right. Whether it's the inverted W or the Tommy John twist, some of these mechanical things that people thought predisposed throwers to injuries. Actually, when you looked at the research, didn't hold water. And what's interesting is now we have more and more ways to actually assess this, right? We've got, you know, biomechanics labs that are more accessible. In the past, it was ASMI or nothing. Now there are more of those popping up in the private sector. Um, you know, certainly you have the Moda sleeve, which is an affordable way to measure, you know, elbow stresses um, and quantify workloads. So we have more and more stuff at our fingertips they're making us realize that we, we probably don't know nearly as much as we used to about what actually keeps an arm healthy. Um, so I tend to look at mechanics much more as performance optimization, unless you're looking at something that's just a crazy outlier. Um, and, and what also becomes hard is that mechanics are the single most debated topic in the baseball world, right? Uh, people struggle with it over and over again, and you can overhaul mechanics and make a player way worse and maybe not make them any healthier. Um, and then we've certainly seen scenarios where that takes place. So you, you have to, you know, I think go after the lowest hanging fruit. Um, you know, and, and so sometimes the play is make these individuals more athletic, give them stability in the range of motion that they have, take care of areas where they may have lost range of motion, things along those lines, I think 
you'll never go wrong in that regard. Um, but what we also know that's very interesting is there are changes that happen from adolescent pitchers to advanced you know, professional pitchers. And one of the big things that's a great study to look at, um, they actually found that, that professional pitchers use 200% more lat recruitment during throwing than amateur pitchers do. So the idea is your lat's a huge muscle, right? It attaches down in your thoracolumbar fascia. Some people actually attach on the ilium on the pelvis. It runs up, it has a costals attachments on the rib cage. In 40% of the population, it attaches on the scapula. Then it runs to the front of the humerus and helps you to internally rotate, adduct, um, and extend the humerus. So it has this huge cross-sectional area that allows you to transfer force from your lower body up to your humerus. Um, it has core control aspects to it. Um, but what we realize is that, a, you know, high level throwers basically use big muscles to do big jobs. What do we get in the younger populations? We get them using their rotator cuff, their biceps tendons, smaller muscles that are actually more stabilization driven um, to drive some of those high speed movements. Um, so there's something to be said about getting kids involved in strength conditioning at a young age, teaching them to move efficiently, um, you know, and, and actually work to, to optimize their, their ability to transfer force into their delivery. And obviously that pendulum can swing too far, right? We have pro guys that get way too strong and lat dominant and, you know, lose tissue extensibility and wind up with a lat strain or something like that. But, you know, you do need to kind of build that foundation um, where if a kid's out there throwing, you know, 86 miles an hour at age 15 and he can't do a pull-up like, you're probably wrestling with, you know, a really, really tough discussion and, and a training approach for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, listen, I've definitely seen that. It's, it's, it's yep. exactly what I've seen. I, you know, I tell kids all the time, you need to be able to pull ups. I'm like, well, I'm going to hurt my elbow. Listen, <laughs> you can't do a pull up. Yeah. You're going to have some issues down the road. You got um, bigger problems. Yeah. And those are the kids, unfortunately, that the ones who do throw hard at the youngest age, um, obviously they're exposed to the stressors that are, that are higher than kids. I mean, you don't, you don't pull your hamstrings if you don't run fast. Right. Um, but what we realize with those young pitchers, it's not just that the stress of throwing is higher with every pitch. It's that they're also the kids who are usually bigger than all their teammates. You know, you've seen 13 year olds where there's always that one kid who's like six, two and all of his buddies are like five, six. Um, and those are the kids that are most likely to get overused because either they throw harder, maybe they've got a, you know, a banger curveball at a young age that no one's ever seen. And, and, you know, those are the kids, unfortunately, you don't hear about, you know, because everybody catches up to them. They get hurt um, because they've had a crazy coach that, you know, traded their arm for a bunch of useless trophies. Uh, listen, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> That's exactly how I think sometimes. Um, and and kind of going off of what you said earlier, uh, when it comes to biomechanics and not knowing what it is, you know, we deal in the speed world. So for us, we're always coaching technique, yeah. uh, power development, obviously a lot of what Bill's talked about with fashion and things like that. Mm -hmm. One of the terms that I've used, and I don't know if this applies to uh, what you're saying, is but we have a lot of athletes that sprint, you know, mm -hmm. and they have good biomechanics in our, our mind. But I've always said there's style versus technique. And I mm -hmm. think at times, stylistically, there are kids who may not look perfect on a video or a TV, man, yeah. they're running fast, and they're not getting yeah. hurt. So do you feel that's kind of the same thing with pitching? Is that what you were saying before, that there are that's some great, pitchers yeah. that do that? I think that, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, maybe this is a good parallel, right? You're looking at acceleration technique, like shin angles matter. You know, if you're, if you're working with, you know, the wrong shin angle, you're, you're pulling the parking brake when you're trying to go a hundred. Um, and we have certain, so that's a certain checkpoint, right? That's a, that's a technique that, 
you know, is, is non-negotiable if you want to run fast. Um, but, you know, within style, you have guys that run with less hip flexion at top speed, right? Um, you see guys who are like toned up like crazy in their neck and some that are very relaxed. You know, you'll see guys that run fast, even with like, you know, maybe not ideal arm actions. They're maybe yeah. a little bit more like side to side. All over, yeah. Right ahead. Yeah. So like you see hockey players run, they always run like that. Right. Um, so I think is, is that's very true of baseball, you know, certainly from a sprinting standpoint where we're very rarely do we see an elite sprinter on a baseball field. And one of the reasons is because you're always going rotational to linear in baseball, right? So you swing a bat, you've got to run to first base. You've got to undo that rotation. You're a catcher that has to sprint back to the backstop on a pass ball, your rotational linear, your base seal, you got to turn towards second base and get linear as quickly as you can. Center fielder going back on the ball. Everything has a, a rotational element for your linear. So a lot of times it, you know, you're trying to right the ship and deliver, you know, good, you know, sprint mechanics right away. The other aspect of it, you may be running with a glove on, which, which certainly can change some things as well. So those are all variability that we see just in sprinting. But when we talk about pitching, no doubt about it. Um, so as an example, you are not going to throw a good breaking ball downhill if your, your arm is inverted at front foot strike you know, more specifically weight bearing front foot strike. It's just a non-negotiable thing. It's, it's, it's physics, you know, you can try to do it, but unless you have the quickest arm in the world, chances are it's going to be a really unpredictable breaking ball. Um, now something like, like Corey Kluber is one of our guys. That was something that Corey kind of struggled with, you know, in his minor league career. And then, you know, around 2011, 2012, his delivery changed. And now he has, you know, one of the best breaking balls on the planet because he was able to get out of that position. And it's, it's a matter of like, we're talking milliseconds, you know, with a delivery like that, but you know, that's something to me that from a, you know, technique standpoint is non-negotiable. Um, you know, so you can sort of look at pitch grips and things like that, but from a style standpoint, um, you know, there's, there's obviously a ton of unique subtleties, things that make guys more deceptive, um, you certainly see this with hitters with, with their approach, you know, a guy like Justin Turner, who's very open, his hands are like almost down at his hips. Eric Davis back in the day was like that. Um, you look at like a Julio Franco who had his hands like Boy, over his head out in <laughs> yeah. front. I mean, Kevin Euclid was a guy I trained. You oh, that was crazy. one hand that was higher up. You know, all these guys have different cues that they use. And you'll actually even see players who use overcorrections in their cueing, right? So the big thing in the baseball world is like, don't swing down on the baseball now, you know, hit the ball in the air. Launch um, angle, all that. Yeah, exactly. And you know, what's interesting is if, you know, you look back years and years ago, like Albert Pujols would talk about how, you know, takes the the knob to the ball, swings down on the ball. But if you watch Pujols videos, he actually does it at all. Like you, <laughs> you don't hit as many home runs and knock in as many yeah. runs as Pujols did. But, you know, that was kind of the foundation for a lot of Bobby Tewksbury's work in the hitting community is that sometimes players give themselves overcorrections um, to bring themselves back to neutral. So you're in many ways, you're like kind of feeding athletes into their dysfunctions so that they self-correct. So um, that's where, you know, a lot of the, the constraint-based model and all that stuff is, has really become more and more popular, but the, the style versus technique is huge. No doubt about it. Baseball might be the absolute best example on the planet. I think I see it all the time. And I, I just wonder, does it happen where a kid may go for, I don't know, extra batting lessons, extra pitching lessons, which, yeah. you know, they probably need, do they coach them out of it too much? Yeah. Do they try to overcorrect it? And what made them successful, now maybe they're changing it. And yeah. could that lead to an injury? Because yeah. maybe that arm slot for them was the wrong. And again, you're way better than I am. But the arm slot they found that works, that doesn't hurt them. And then they overcorrect them mechanically. Now yeah. you have a bad arm slot that hurts them. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think, you know, as Bill has talked about in a lot of his, um, you know, his fascial research work is that 
we adapt very specifically to the, the stresses that we impose on ourselves. So, you know, making a dramatic change to someone's delivery, you know, theoretically could expose people to positions that they haven't built up a tolerance to, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and the other thing too, is I think historically the industry has done a lot of training downstream thinking it will improve performance. So that might be changing a pitch grip, um, you know, some, you know, trying to change like how the individual takes the ball out of the glove or an arm action. A lot of times it's the upstream stuff that, that creates what you want. Maybe it's changing the direction from the back hip or how quickly the front side swings open. So we spend a lot more time on the lower half and repeatability there um, and in creating the right amount of both direction and distance. Um, and, and a lot of times that takes care of a lot of the things further up the chain. So it's an important consideration to really work through. Well, I think that might relate to the athleticism. And that was a question I was going to talk to you about. Uh, you know, in my opinion, if kids are more athletic, say they play football or baseball or basketball or anything like that, you know, mm-hmm. if they're kind of comboing it, that athleticism, most of those sports, you need to move your lower body, right? There's lateral movement, there's power movements, all of those things are happening. Uh, I, I know I feel this way, but do you feel that that's another way that it can help? We'll say a throwing athlete, not just a pitcher, a throwing athlete. Number one, generate more power because, listen, that's what everybody's looking at now. They're looking at the gun. But also, you know, understand how to use their body as part yeah. of the movement pattern that you're trying to achieve. No doubt about it. I mean, I think at the end of the day, I don't think uh, performance and health are mutually exclusive, right? There's there's an efficient way to move, um, you know, regardless of sports. So I think a lot of those interventions are, are things that can, you know, can certainly help in that regard. Yeah, because we, so we, we train a lot of our baseball players. And, and again, we're fighting the fight of, well, they want to get more pitching in or they want to mm-hmm. you know get more uh, games in. And we're trying to convince them, listen, you need to work with us as well. We want to keep you healthy, number one. But mm-hmm. listen, we, we know kids want to throw harder. And, and I think you know kids are watching on TV, and I'm sure you're dealing with it. You've dealt with a ton of major league and minor league guys. The gun is, is I guess, a blessing and a curse, right? Yeah. Um, it gives you feedback, but it might give you too much or the wrong feedback at the time. You know, how, how do you deal with that? Because listen, every kid, they want to throw hard. I mean, that's, yeah. that, that's what I deal with every single day. How do you temper them to say, listen, this is what we need to work on. And it may take three months, six months, nine months, years to get yeah. you to the point. And then how do you temper them that, you know, you may not hit 90 miles an hour. Like maybe yeah. they're just not built to throw that way. Yeah. I, th- I think the first you know, thing you do is you have, you know, very candid conversations and you know, I'm kind of fortunate that I can be super direct with people nowadays, just because yeah. of the kind of the caliber of guys that we deal with. So, you know, and we built a large sample size of, you know, what successful throwers have done. So, you know, my first thing is I'll, I'll always have a conversation about where your window of adaptation is, right? You, you're throwing 86, but you, you can't deadlift 225. Like let's have a candid conversation about what your biggest window of adaptation is. It's clearly not going out doing an, a more aggressive throwing program. It's probably much more about body weight, um, you know, patterning, putting strength in the right places and then developing some, some power underneath it. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing that's always worked really well for us. And we're fortunate to be able to do this is we have a case, you know, we have a collection of case studies who have done things the right way of kids who haven't specialized and have gone on to become first rounders and big leaguers um, of guys who have made good decisions about how to prioritize their health. So I'll, I'll literally walk a kid across the facility and have him talk to a pro guy and say, Hey, this is, you know, so-and-so, you know, Morgan McSweeney is one of our guys. Morgan was 12 years old when he started training with us. He got cut from his high school team as a junior, um, came in and worked his butt off, you know, got himself right, got a scholarship to Wake Forest without ever having thrown a varsity pitch. 
Um, went to Wake Forest, drafted by the Orioles. He's up to 99 miles an hour. Like I can literally walk across the, you know, the room and grab Morgan and be like, here's a kid who's, who was with us at age 12, who's now almost throwing a hundred. Like he has a lot of things to teach you and how you're doing it is not the right path. Morgan talked to him. And it, those are things that are impactful for a kid um, because you're always trying to make them realize that what they see on Instagram or Twitter isn't the only way. Yeah, I mean, listen, that's huge advice. Hopefully everybody rewinds that and listens to that part because I think, it, listen, we all deal with it. We're, deal, we're in the private sector, right? right? We have kids mm-hmm. who are coming in and have dreams and we want to help them get to those dreams. Yeah. Um, but, and, and, and they be able to have that resource, but also too, you know, you know, we could also, you, you know, utilize you or utilize your, your research and say, listen, mm-hmm. these are what these guys have all done. And I get it. There are some kids who did specialize and they are successful. So you can't say yeah. it doesn't happen, but if we could figure out a better way to make the kid just a total athlete. And my goal every day is I said, listen, I don't want you to get hurt. If yeah. I can train you for four years or five years and you never get an injury, I think I've done a great job with you. And I think all the other stuff will happen. It really will. Because yeah. if you're injured, it's going to throw a lot of things off. One, you're going to lose time. But typically, yeah. mechanically, something might happen after, after you get injured. I've, I've seen yeah. it a ton. Um, so how, how have you dealt with that? Obviously, there are some kids that do get injured. Unfortunately, yeah. it could be because of poor mechanics or they just dove the wrong way and they jammed their yeah. arm. How do you work with that and, and, and get kids to understand, okay, these are the things that we have to do to add your body to get it back to normal. And you may have to take a few steps back, take a few steps forward because they don't like to wait, you know, if they want yeah. to get back on the field. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. Like I, I would say that, you know, 60 to 70% of the time when you're dealing with young athletes, those injuries are blessings in disguise. You know, it's a kid that was headed down a bad path and it's the wake up call that, that he or she needed. And you can actually use it as an opportunity to educate them and get them to do things that maybe previously they wouldn't have done for you. So um, I actually uh, I, I try to always frame that in that context. And even with pro guys, you know, like, you have a Tommy John surgery, that's a year to overhaul your body. You can do some pretty remarkable things and, and really push hard and, um, you know, and challenge yourself in different ways. So I have I have. Um, you know, traditionally had those conversations pretty regularly um, at, at, with guys with all levels. And, and I think it is something that, you know, we have to keep in mind. One of the things that helps is um, we have physical therapists at both of our facilities. So they're in-house. So, um, you know, being able to communicate with them on the fly, I think is really, really helpful in terms of progressing, regressing people according to, you know, what they see in their, their therapy aspect of things. But we train, I mean, this year has been absolutely crazy from a, an injury standpoint in pro baseball. Um, so I have like seven different major leaguers that I'm watching over either in person or from afar after their Tommy John surgery. So, you know, it's given me this really good sample size of knowing, you know, kind of tendencies with each surgeon, um, each graft site, you know, understanding the timeline. So I've built this pretty good sample size. And, you know, so we have guys that are, you know, working out as soon as, you know, 12 to 14 days after a Tommy John and we're, we're watching over him for that full year. So it's an amazing opportunity to, you know, to get people to, to really overhaul the way that they, they feel, look and move. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing I've said to a few of my kids I've worked with, um, you know, I think with COVID in a weird way, maybe it was a blessing because for us, especially in the Northeast, everything was shut down. So kids literally couldn't play for a while. And I know it was killing them. And I think mentally it definitely took a little bit of a toll. Now things are getting back to normal. We're started, we started all sports here. Um, How do you think that's going to look over the next year? I know you, maybe you can't predict it, but you had some people that were forced to take a break. Major league was forced to take a break, even though kids, the guys were training, um, 
Do you think that's going to have a positive or negative effect? You think it might be just kind of like a net zero? How do you think that's um, going to work? I know I'm putting you on the spot yeah. with that one, but no, I think I think it's scary for a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, certainly we saw we saw in professional baseball the injury rates were astronomically higher, um, yep. and and the NFL is following suit right now. Yep. Um, the number of Achilles and ACLs that have already happened there are sky high. Um, you know, I think you know it was probably a number of different reasons um, in baseball, but you know. A three week spring training compared to a six week spring training was just not enough. Um, you always get a little bit more of a run up when guys have soreness, things like that. Um, so I think that has to do with it. And, and what's scary is that's a much more controlled environment. Like you have tons of sports medicine and strength conditioning resources at those guys' fingertips in the NFL and MLB. You know, certainly it was the case in, in European soccer as well. The German um, professionally, I think, was the first one to come back and they saw it as well. So when you have players that have remarkable sports medicine resources at their fingertips and they're still getting hurt at astronomically high rates, um, that thing is, that's really scary because you know that the youth players are not going to have that. They're not going to have nearly as much of a ramp up for when they do a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, sure there were, I'm sure there were a ton of injuries, you know, it's hard to document them. Um, you know, guys have been doing their thing this summer, but you know, I think the other challenge is going to be, you know, do we worry that there are a lot of kids who are racing to get seen for college scholarships and, you know, trying to find a place to play? And, you know, so all of a sudden they're throwing, you know, maybe excessively or throwing when they're not ready or they're doing whatever they possibly can to showcase. There's that. I think the other thing, too, is like we, we bank on access to facilities and expertise to try to keep these kids strong and healthy, you know. There were a lot of states that, you know, closed gyms down and, you know, didn't give uh, these guys access to the expertise, the resources they really need. And I mean, we can we can say all we want that, you know, we don't need a facility. We can train them in parking lots, all that stuff. It's it's not the same. You know, I mean, it's, no, it's no, not, the, not the same level of, of care that we would have otherwise given them. So, you know, I do worry that we are going to see kind of like a a collection of, of, you know, kind of the fallouts from from COVID injuries over the next little bit. Um because it does seem like the trend was there, obviously, in, in professional levels. It seems like they're in the college sports as well. Although they haven't as been as competitive, I guess, on, on all those different fronts as, as pro sports have. But, you know, the, the youth sports are definitely going to follow suit. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's, it's been crazy. I think that's probably the word I've used more in the past, yeah. you know, six, nine months. Is It's just crazy every single day. And, you yeah. know, us as strength coaches, we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to work with people. I have a lot of kids that want to train now. I'm working on yeah. high school kids are trying to train, but I'm also trying to slow them down because exactly what you said, I have kids, I have a showcase in two weeks. I have this. I'm like, you haven't done anything in three months. Yeah. We have to be careful. So it's, it's trying to walk that tightrope, which I think a strength coach has to do probably better than most people in our industry because we're always trying to figure things out. We don't control what they do outside of our facilities. And and that's always an issue. We can give them advice, but yeah, can't always control it. I think touch points are, are a big thing too. I mean, I mean, in other words, you see them regularly. It's an opportunity to check in with them. I mean, just just like we see, obviously, you know, it's terrible, but you're obviously seeing more child abuse cases go unreported and things like that in the era of COVID. People are going to the hospital, you know, when they've got appendicitis as soon because they're worried about getting infected and all that stuff. And I think the same thing happens, you know, obviously to a much less significant degree with respect to how we manage athletes. How many of those kids, you know, how many like hamstrings or ACLs do we head off because a kid reports, you know, abnormal soreness to us. We modify some training. We understand how he moves and, you know, work on something. So I think that's a big concern is not having kids, you know, in schools and, you know, going after school programs and stuff like that. How many of those injuries are we going to not be able to prevent just because we haven't had face time with them? 
No, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, I, I've seen it. I've seen it with a few kids that I haven't seen over till the, you know, the end of the summer and you see them like, Oh, my hips bother me. My hamstrings bother me. And I'm like, wait, hold on. You know, and it, now it's okay. How do we, how do we kind of peel it back and then, and then come up with a program that that's going to work for them in, in that time frame, which is, it doesn't always uh, click. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting for us. You know, like I said, it's, it's crazy for us. And I, I think, you know, what you're doing is, is unbelievable. And I think everyone can, can take a ton from this call. Uh, you know, I want to rewind it back and listen to it a few more times, but I, I had one more question sure I wanted to ask, ask about, and it's, it's something more new for, for myself and also what bill and, and what we're trying to incorporate yeah. in our, in our programming. So the idea of breathing, right? So breathing yeah. is important. We know that, um, it, on a side note, I was lucky enough to, I spoke at the uh, Vertimax Summit. I was one of the keynote yeah. speakers and I spoke with Dana Santis, who I know you know yeah. very well. She's the best, yeah. Um, I was blown away. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that because I know you know her. I was blown away. It was the first time it, it made sense to me, Yeah, if, if that makes any sense. So how do you, or if you, do you incorporate that? I know you work with her a little bit and, and, yeah. and you incorporate in your program. How do you work with that? And as far as core stabilization, how do and how do you get that across to baseball players? Because I know it's not always the easiest sell in the beginning that we have yeah. to work on breathing and core stabilization. And just want to just pick your brand on your thoughts on all of it. I know you believe in it, but just want to yeah, thought yeah, about for it. sure. So I think where where breathing is 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 powerful is it you you have the ability to both reduce bad tone and add good tone. Right. It's depending on how you position yourselves, um, how you approach breathing. Um, and, you know, so my first kind of foray into this world was, you know, through like the postural restorations to got exposed to their stuff from 2009, 2010. And, um, you know, that really changed my career in the sense that I realized that, you know, just by manipulation, manipulating the position of the thorax and, you know, um, impacting the respiratory system could have really a pronounced impacts on, on distal mobility um, and, and the, the outcomes that we got with athletes, whether that was respect to maintaining shoulder internal rotation or improving IR at the hip or, you know, anything like that. Um, even like, you know, neck motion would, would come around really quickly. So I realized that, you know, there were probably a lot of times that we were stretching a joint that didn't need to be stretched. We were, we were trying to stretch out an alignment issue. When you just crank on a joint that's out of alignment, you create instability. Um, so, you know, it got me thinking a lot more about, Hey, before we stretch, let's understand why we're stretching and what we're actually stretching. And before we do it, let's make sure that we're back in some semblance of neutrality. Um, and that's, that's driven largely by the position of the, you know, the, the pelvis and its interaction with the rib cage and the spine. So, um, you know, I think that's where, where breathing has really come in for us, What you have to be cognizant of as a strength conditioning coach is that, you know, much like you hinted at, like it you know, like PRI obviously uses balloons and things like that. If you, if you're going to bust out a couple of balloons and do nine different breathing exercises while rage against the machine is blaring in the background, <laughs> your athletes are going to check out really, really quickly. So, you know, with that in mind, you know, it's about being efficient. It's about having certain drills that you coach meticulously, but get in, get out. So I think a lot of people see, you know, my writing or, you know, hear me speak or anything like that. And they think this, it's this huge part of what we do in reality, it's one to 2% of what we do. Right. And it's, you know, maybe it's a subtle cue that we add. It's a, you know, half kneeling cable chop with full exhale at the bottom of each one. Maybe it's a reverse bear call with a full exhale on each step or something along those lines, or it's just, you know, one or two positional breathing drills that we'll use at the start of a warmup. Um, and we know, you know, when you, when you exhale full, you get recruitment of your, you know, your anterior core, your rectus, your external obliques. Um, you're probably toning down a lot of those accessory respiratory muscles when you're positioning your rib cage effectively so that you can actually use your diaphragm well. So, 
you know, you, you can go down the rabbit hole as much as you want. Um, you know, Bill Hartman's got some great stuff on, you know, wide versus narrow infrasternal angle. Um, so, so that stuff that's, that's impacting how we coach breathing, how we, you know, we pick certain exercises more. So like a, a wide infrasternal angle, you know, we'll probably do more stuff in supine. We'll do really forceful exhales, almost like trying to blow out the birthday candles. Whereas a narrow infrasternal angle, maybe we're going to do stuff in quadruped and we use the cue of like fogging up the mirror. So it's a different kind of, of breath. So, you know, you just understand over the years how to use it a little bit better. Um, you know, and, and certainly Dana is a, a wonderful person to speak on a lot of this from, from her background and, you know, in yoga and, and understanding how we can use breath to, to shift to more parasympathetic activity, um, you know, even beyond just, you know, what we talk about with the alignment aspect of things. So it, it's a, it's a game changer if you use it correctly. I think like anything else, there's some people that have taken it too far, right? So we have the you know, the zealots, you know, for, for various disciplines that kind of fall underneath that umbrella. Um, and, and so I always look at, you know, we adopt something like this, we have to figure out how it fits with our existing philosophy. You know, we, we want to use a tinker, maybe it's one or 2%, but it's not like a, a full on overhaul. Yeah. I think the way you're saying exactly how I would like to incorporate, I'm still trying to understand it. I'm a big believer in it until I fully understand it. I'm not going to implement it in my program, but I agree using it, uh, as, you know, part of your warm up or your movement prep, it might be one or two or three exercises. There's also perceived value from a parent, right? They're watching my kid lay on the ground breathing. Like, what are you doing with my kid? Um, But the other thing I noticed was, and I didn't understand it at the time. I noticed I was watching, you know, some of the baseball games. I was watching a lot of the Red Sox Mm -hmm. players step out of the batter's box. And I'm like, what are they doing? Why are they all breathing like that? And then it hit me. Obviously, I know Dana worked with them. And J.D. Martinez, you know, came to mind. Mm -hmm. And I saw him go through that you know, his routine that he came up with. So do you think, you know, taking this breathing technique and, and, and try to understand it definitely for the training aspect, but having a long-term uh, effect where they're prepping themselves on their own, because one of the things I try to pride myself on with the kids is that when they go to a field or a game or whatever, they can do the things that they're doing with us at the field to prep for that game, to get them mentally ready, physically ready. Do you, how do you feel that long-term effect has, has uh, worked for some of your players if you've utilized it? Yeah. The first thing I'll tell you is if you look at, um, you know, every single pitcher on the planet, hitter on the planet, like there is a breathing aspect to their routine. Um, you know, like pitchers in particular, there's always a breath as they gather themselves. You know, actually Scott Brown at, at Vanderbilt's the pitching coach. He's a great guy, really, really good dude and a good friend. But, um, you know, I've, I've you know been in Vanderbilt's pitching lab where they have like each player's, you know, pre-pitch routine and there's always like a breath written in in some capacity um and like you mentioned you see guys doing it in the box as well so i do think there's a place for it um you know, just to kind of gather yourself and, and prepare yourself i don't think we're necessarily manipulating you know positioning with that or tone but more we're, we're implementing like an element of routine so it's kind of like you know you'll often see pitchers just like wipe the the rubber clean right with their foot and it's just a it's a lot of guys look at that as like all right i'm i'm wiping away what's happened and i'm on to the next like it's it's just a pattern they have so um i i think there's absolutely a place for it um you know every athlete needs to figure out what works for them and you you see the long elaborate you know kind of pre-pitch setup with like what nomar did with his batting gloves and david ortiz obviously had a, a pretty elaborate one as well um but i i do think there's something to be said about like just you know, finding breathing as part of a routine. Um, I also know like Alan Jager is a close friend. Alan's, you know, really specialized in, in long toss and yoga, but the mental side of things is really big. So he's, he's huge on, on breathing a lot. I know a lot of the guys that he works with will actually meditate before they go out and, and make starts and things like that. So 
there's a pretty good track record of, of players using it to gather their thoughts and prepare their bodies. So it's, it's definitely worth checking out. Well, that's probably the other effect of it, right? The mental aspect, I think, you know, how do we find kids to calm everything down? Especially kids, you know, kids are different than a professional athlete. You take a 16 year old, they might be freaking out every at bat or freaking out before yeah. every pitch. And how do you, how do they find that right routine that usually, you know, a, a simple term center them or get them mentally prepared or relaxed, whatever work, like you said, everybody's different. I think that goes back mm-hmm. to style technique we mentioned earlier. Yeah. I don't think every player is the same. I mean, I watch, I watch tons of pro sports and you could see everybody has something that works for them and trying yeah. to find that. And I think maybe introducing this to some kids, some kids may take hold of it right away. Some, it may, yeah. you know, may not click for them, you know, in the beginning and until they get older and maybe really understand how their body works. I don't think a kid really gets it until 16, 17, 18. I no, I'd say, long. I'd say that's even maybe on the young side, to be honest, like I've seen, you know, 18 year old first rounders who still don't have really established routines and don't repeat their mechanics and all that. So I think one of the things that that's challenging with young athletes is often they're, you know, they kind of are shiny object syndrome, right? They'll bounce around from one thing to the next and they never really stick with something long enough to critically evaluate how it works for them. And, And to be honest, like, you know, we have, you know, kind of a whole, you know, uh, quantitative analytics department here with the Yankees. And, you know, a big part of, of what they have to do is really sort through randomness, right? You know, there's, if you have an athlete that goes out and, you know, hits seven home runs and 30 at bats, like it might not be at all indicative of what he's going to do over the course of a season or a career. So there's a certain number of at bats, pitches, things like that, that you need to build, you know, a sample size that can be trusted. Um, and, and certainly I think that happens with a young player, right? He, he does a new exercise and he goes out and gets seven hits in a weekend. So he feels like he's on top of the world and he sticks with it, even if it might be complete garbage or it's something that, you know, he saw, you know, somebody do on Instagram and he throws it in there. And then there's an element of randomness that worked in his favor. Um, so I do think you need to give things, you know, a longer run and really figure out what they're going to do. But, you know, just as importantly, you got to have a rationale for everything that you do. Um, I think that's you know a question that I'll actually ask athletes a lot. Why are you doing that? What's that doing for you? Uh-huh. And, and, you know, I think when we're talking about a, you know, uh, pregame routine, anything like that, everything should be justified. Um, it shouldn't just be like, Oh, it gets me loose. I'm like, well, right, what does loose mean? You know, you <laughs> dig a little bit deeper and make them actually yeah. think about these things. And, um, you know, oftentimes it, it helps them grow in the process. Or like if they saw something on Instagram, they thought it was yeah. cool. Right. That's it. It happens. It's amazing. We have to compete with Mark Zuckerberg to do our coaching the right way, but uh, no, it's, it's true. It's, it's, it's the reality we're up against. It's true. It's totally true. Well, um, this was an unbelievable call, uh, unbelievable podcast. I think, you know, we could talk eight hours. I mean, your, your brain, I can tell is, is going a million miles a minute. And, um, I really appreciate all the feedback that you gave us and all the coaches out there that are going to listen to you. Uh, we wish you continued success, obviously in your private business, but you know, work working in the big leagues and hopefully you're, you're out on the bubble for a couple more weeks. I mean, that would, that would be the ultimate dream for you. Right on. Um, how, how could people find you? I know obviously you have a website and social media yeah. handles. So why don't you just give us all your spots so people can get more information from you? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's just at Eric Cressy on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, the website is ericcressy.com. Um, we've got a free newsletter and, you know, a blog that I update uh, pretty regularly. And then the, the podcast is honestly the, probably the thing I would encourage people to check out the most if they're really interested in this baseball world. Um, it's the Elite Baseball Development Podcast. You can find it on iTunes or EliteBaseballPodcast.com. But that's a fun one because we, you know, we talk to a lot of players, but we also speak to sports scientists, orthopedic surgeons, physical therapists, skill development folks, nutritionists, mental skills folks, just because um, we want to give people a really multifaceted development. Um, so actually I have a 
like a sports medicine series coming out pretty soon where we speak with a, a few different orthos and PTs and manual therapists. And, and actually Bill's podcast is going to be in there. We talked fascia training and stuff too. And it was, a, it was actually a really fun chat. So um, they can check that out when it, uh, when it starts back up here soon. Well, cool. Well, again, everyone should definitely hit you up. I subscribe to your newsletter. It's great. So I enjoy that every week. I get your emails and I think I thank you very much. Listen to your <laughs> podcast a little more as well. And again, Appreciate thank it. you so much for, for your time. I know you're really busy. You're getting ready to head over to the field. So uh, best of luck. Hopefully, you know, we don't, we don't hear from you for a few weeks and, <laughs> and you're having fun out there and hopefully your wife has a great anniversary when you get back, maybe we'll bring her some, some cool stuff back. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you very much for All having right. me, Steve. Thank All you, right. Eric Cressy. You're the man. I appreciate it.